Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 6. Hebrews 8, starting at verse 1. Now hear the word of God. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he, that is the Lord, says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Amen. Now, one of the things that we are learning as we study through the book of Hebrews we are focusing a lot on the theme of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, and for those of you visiting us, we don't necessarily know exactly who this author is, but the author, the apostle here, tells us um, something, I think, of what his pastoral aim is, and that is he is, in this letter, trying to remind this congregation, chiefly composed of Hebraic Christians, not to leave the gospel, not to leave the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the, the pastoral issue. A lot of these new first-generation Hebraic Christians may have felt pressure to go back to Judaism, whether it was because of persecution, whether it was because... Uh, the glory, the outward splendor, the outward majesty of the temple and the rituals that went on were much more essentially attractive than, say, the simple Christian worship in spirit and truth in very plain facilities, sometimes even in hiding, possibly, if they were facing duress and persecution. And so there may have been all kinds of uh, familial pressures, pressures, social pressures, uh, pressures uh, put on these people, and they're beginning to drift away from the Lord. Now, this is <clears throat> something that I think is valuable, though, by way of application for us in the church, because this phenomenon of the tendency to drift from the Lord is not anything that is uh, new. This is, this is something that we face today, and they faced back then. So they're even though some of the particulars are a little different in which they faced from what we face, I want you to see, though, the, the meta picture 
is very applicable, and that is there is a tendency within us, even those of us who have been born again, born of the Spirit, we have been regenerated, we've been brought into union with Jesus Christ through faith, we still have a tendency to move and drift from the Lord. And so this is a very valuable study to always be bringing us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer that the apostle gives in the book of Hebrews is to show us the supremacy of Jesus Christ, to show us why we should never leave Jesus Christ, why we need to be vigilant against our own backsliding. And also, and I'm going to focus on this some in the application section, how we minister to people who are backsliding. How do we help others who are drifting uh, from the Lord and bring them uh, back to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think if we look closely here, we'll, we'll see uh, why this is such an important thing. There is a lot of backsliding today. Mark Jones, if you're interested in this subject, has written a great book that came out this year. It's not that long either. I finished it in two days. It's called Pilgrim's Regress. Uh, Pilgrim's Regress, not Progress. Pilgrim's Regress. And it talks, talks about the issue of backsliding and of apostasy, and so and, and it deals with uh, the symptoms, but also the cures for, for these things. Now, last week, we were looking at Jesus Christ and the permanency of his ministry and the impeccability of his ministry, that Jesus is a permanent king and priest, but also one that is sinless. And what I want us to see here as we begin in chapter 8 are two things. Number one, Jesus Christ is set before us as priest and king in one person. He is priest and king. That would have been highly unusual uh, for the Hebraic believers to hear because they were used to this being two distinct offices that never met together ever. But here in Jesus Christ, you have these two distinct offices coming together in one person, and we'll explain why that is so significant. The second thing I want you to see from verses 2 through 6 is that Jesus Christ is superior because he also ministers from the realm of glory. Jesus Christ is superior because he secondly ministers from the realm of glory, unlike the other priests. Uh, that you find in the Old Covenant. So let's think about those two points uh, together. Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, this is where point number 1 is coming from. And the author says this, Now the main point in what has been said is this, We have such a high priest. Who is this high priest, boys and girls? It's Jesus Christ, okay? We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Now, I want to say a few things about this verse. Look at, first of all, notice how he opens verse 1. He says, now the main point in what has been said. What is he saying here? What has been said that this is the main point? Well, remember Hebrews chapter 7. What was the, the, the point there? He was showing us basically that Jesus Christ is our great high priest and we shouldn't move away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes into a very detailed argument about why Jesus is greater than the priests 
of the tribe of Levi in the Old Covenant. And he begins with that historic figure, you remember Melchizedek. And basically the argument goes like this. This historic figure, Melchizedek, he comes and he blesses Father Abraham, the father of the Jews. He gives Abraham bread and wine. He gives Abraham a blessing. And Abraham, in response, offers a tithe to Melchizedek. The point is this, that Melchizedek is greater than Father Abraham. Father Abraham, you'll remember, is the great-granddaddy of who? Of Levi and all the tribes of Israel. Abraham is the great-granddaddy of Levi, and if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, the argument is that the order of Melchizedek is greater than the tribe of Levi. And so he's saying to these believers, don't go back to the old covenant forms and shadows of the tribe of Levi and their inferior sacrifices and their inferior priesthood. The Levites were many. Why? Because they're dying all the time. But you have one high priest who lives forever because of his resurrection, Jesus Christ. The Levites are sinners. They have to make atonement for themselves before they make an atonement for the people of God. The high priest in the Old Covenant has to go in and the first offering that he brings is what? Behind that veil once a year on the Day of Atonement. It's the blood for his own sin so that then he can bring blood for the sins of God's people. But we have Jesus Christ who offered his own blood. Jesus Christ is without sin. Jesus Christ provides a better righteousness. Jesus Christ is a better sacrifice than the animal sacrifice. The Levites sacrifice not only inferior sacrifices, but they do it every year, day after day after day. And Christ, no, one time and forever. The Levites ministered in an earthly tabernacle built by human hands, brick and mortar. But Jesus Christ we are told, ministers in glory, in heaven. The Levites went behind the curtain. The high priest would go behind the curtain on the Day of Atonement and make the sacrifices. Jesus Christ at his death, when he said, it is finished, what happened to that curtain? It was torn in two. And so in every way that you could think and imagine, Jesus Christ is far better as a priest and as a sacrifice, and as a mediator of a covenant that is better than all that the Levites could muster. Now, go back to verse 1, chapter 80. In light of all that I just said, the author of Hebrews says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have a high, such a high priest. You have, in Jesus Christ, by faith, a priest. He is your high priest. Now, if you do not yet believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have this high priest. The way you obtain Jesus Christ as your personal high priest is by faith in him. He is given to us by God that we should believe on him and that we should receive him as our Lord and Savior, but also as our high priest. 
You must take him by faith. And so I would urge you, if you are not yet a Christian, or you're still thinking about becoming a Christian, or you're just wondering, what is this church all about? Well, we're about Jesus Christ, first and foremost. We offer Jesus Christ every week because this is the sum of our faith. Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end of everything for us. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the A and the Z of the Greek alphabet. Jesus Christ is our beginning. He's our middle. He's our end. Jesus Christ is everything to us. He is our prophet. He's the word of God. He's our priest. He's our sacrifice. He's our king. He's our Lord. He's the one we love. He's the one we serve. You know, the problem in the first, even in the early first generation, especially if you believe the book of Revelation predated AD 70, there's dispute as to when it was written, whether it was written earlier in the 60s or later, even up to 90 AD. But one of the things that you see there is that even the church of Ephesus was losing her first love. You remember how Jesus said, you know, you guys are orthodox, you're conservative, you're Bible-believing, you've got all these things going for you. And that's, that, that's like us. But here was the problem with the Ephesians, and we don't want this to be the problem with you and, and me. They left their first love. They, they were moving slowly away from Jesus Christ even in the midst of orthodoxy, even in the midst of all their conservatism, uh, they, they were moving from the heart away from Jesus Christ. And so, you, you know, don't count on your orthodoxy to keep you from backsliding. It is Christ who keeps you from backsliding. That's why you have to keep looking to Christ. That's why you have to keep looking to the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you can become cold orthodox. You can become, you know, dead orthodox. Now, you shouldn't be that, but um, because if you're really orthodox, it'll always, you know, should drive you to Jesus Christ. You know, we're not saved by the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but we're saved by Christ. It's Christ who saves. See, if you really believe in justification by faith alone, you look to Christ. So even, even conservative churches can fall into this. This is important for us. And, and I think here we see something of what the author is trying to do into, in the, by way of recovering, with, uh, recovering backsliders pastorally. He shows us the greatness of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the loveliness of Jesus, the power of Jesus Christ, the, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the, the sinless humanity of Jesus Christ. He is putting all the lovely ways we can look at Jesus Christ in his person, in his offices, and he is saying, this is the way home. This is the way back from drifting. Is a Christ, 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 Christ. So if you... Also, one more thing I want to say from verse 1. Remember, point 1 here is that we have Christ who is priest and king here. Notice what he says. In light of all that has been said, we have such a high priest. And then he says, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, that's an extraordinary statement for a Jew to hear. And this is the reason why. Boys and girls, in the Old Testament, 
And, and you remember when we studied the book of Kings? What did the kings do and what were they not to do? You remember? The kings were supposed to execute the laws of God. What were the kings not supposed to do? The kings were not supposed to take to themselves the office and the duties of the priest. We've seen it. We saw it with Uzziah, right? We saw it with Saul, right? Remember? Saul panics because Samuel's nowhere in sight. What does Saul do? I'll do the sacrifice. And what does God do? He takes away the kingdom from Saul. You have Uzziah. Uzziah's a godly man. Uzziah's one of the good guys. He's one of the good kings. And yet even Uzziah, in, in his pride, what happens? He goes to the temple and he begins to offer incense. Kings were not supposed to touch those holy things in the temple. They were to be, in another sense, like every other worshiper of God. Except they had their own entrance. <laughs> they had their own entrance and they had their own special place they got to stand. But other than that, they're like everybody else. They were to be like everybody else who came to church. They weren't supposed to be anybody else special. And yet, uh, when they took these things to themselves, the sacrifices, God took it so seriously, he gave Uzziah leprosy. And the priests see that Uzziah is breaking out in leprosy, and they say, get this guy out of here. God is bringing a terrible judgment on him. And they usher him out, and Uzziah is shut up for the rest of his life. And, and he had, one of his sons kind of reigns in his place, at least for public functions, uh, because of that. He took to himself. So this was really impressed on the mind of, of a Jew, that there is a sharp, hard distinction in these offices between priest and king. And yet, notice what our text is saying. We have now a high priest in Jesus who is of the order of Melchizedek. It's a superior order to the Levites. And this priest is sitting down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Now, what is significant about this idea of sitting at the right hand of the throne? What that means, that's a way of communicating that this priest is also sharing in the glory of God in reigning, in power, as a king. Now that is significant for several reasons. Number one, we were told in the prophets that God does not share his glory with another. That should tell you something about the nature and the essence of who Jesus Christ really is because God does not share his glory with you and me. He does not share his glory with anybody. But he is willing to have this high priest who also is a king to sit at his right hand. And that it means that, that he is giving to Jesus Christ this special position of authority, of governing, until Jesus makes all his enemies a footstool beneath his feet. So that you have here in this one person, Christ as both the priest who has offered himself on the cross, who has presented himself behind the veil in glory to the Father, and the Father says to the Son, Son, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. You come and reign and share in my kingdom reign. 
Now, this would have been a tremendous um, theological impression to the Jews. He shares in the Father's glory. He shares in the reign with God. And they also, you have, secondly, another significant thing, that is, you have, a, you have a priest who is king. And he is also prophet, but that's just not in this verse here. But you have that office as well. So you have a priest who reigns as king. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. So if you want to know what are the most important psalms according to the New Testament, you better put Psalm 110 at the top of your list. If you don't know Psalm 110, I encourage you to read it and think about it. Because there it shows the priesthood of Christ and Christ as king. And Jesus Christ is not only priest and king, but he is man and God. He is fully man and he is fully God, fully divine and truly human. And one nature does not mix with the other nature so that they get compounded in any way. He is truly a man like you and me, yet without sin. And yet he is also absolutely, fully, completely divine. He is fully God, as is the Father and the Holy Spirit. This too is brought together in the one person of Christ. So here's the significance. Christ is a priest who reigns as a king. He fulfills Psalm 110. And Christ also is unique because he brings this together in his one person. This it makes for a tremendous theme because when you bring the priesthood and the kingship together in Jesus Christ, you have a wonderful full orb theology. You have sacrifice as Jesus is priest, and you have dominion. You have humiliation in Jesus' earthly ministry and exaltation seated at the right hand of God. You have the cross of Jesus Christ, the suffering and the scepter of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I emphasize this? I emphasize this because you and I, as we think about what it means to be a Christian, need to keep both aspects of Jesus' ministry and life before us. See, sometimes maybe the church has gone too much to one side or the other. You've got some Christians out there, they're all into the dominion, but they're not so much into the sacrifice. Uh, they're all into the exaltation and the glory. You know, the guys on TV saying, you know, if you give me some seed money, you'll have all the glory. You don't need to wait for heaven. You can get that glory now. You know, just send that check in. And uh, we'll pray over it uh, and, you know, over our little cloth and we'll send it back to you. But we have to keep in mind, the Apostle Paul says that I might know Jesus Christ in his humiliation and in his exaltation, that I might know Jesus Christ in his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection. You've got to have both if you're going to be a well-balanced Christian. You need to be servant-oriented, but also depending upon the glory of God. We need to take up our cross, but we also need to remember that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. You see how the New Testament does that? The New Testament always brings these two aspects together.
And we don't want to separate them or overemphasize one at the expense of the other. Humiliation and exaltation, sacrifice and dominion, humiliation, exaltation, cross and scepter go together. And that's what we see here. These people who are probably are the original audience here are thinking they need to leave Jesus Christ and go back. Maybe it was because they were sensing that there was a missing glory. And it looked so much more attractive to go back to that huge, huge temple. Remember, even the disciples got caught up in it for a while, didn't they? Lord, look how beautiful these stones are. How beautiful this building is. You know, before they leave the temple and as they were going up to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said, not one stone on this building is going to be left speaking and prophesying about what would happen in AD 70. He was going to remind them, yeah, you guys think this building is beautiful. You think it's neat. You think it's glorious. But this is not the glory that God is intending ultimately here. This glory is shadowy. This glory is typological. I'm the fulfillment of this building, Jesus is saying. Look to me. Look to me. And it may very well be that many of these Hebraic Christians were thinking like the disciples. It just looks more glorious back at the building than what we've got here. We can fall into that ourselves, can't we? We can think, hey, man, there's not much here. But I think the New Testament would say, look beyond that to the glory. You know, I'm not in the biggest church. I'm not in the, you know, I don't have the best looking pastor. I don't have the, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have the, the outward show that the big steeple guys have. But what would Jesus say about that? Look, I think beyond that to the glory that is in heaven where Jesus is seated. Let me move quickly here to the second point. And I'm going to use more verses for this second point here. Uh, and that is that in addition to Jesus Christ being priest and king, in verses 2 through 6, we have Jesus Christ who ministers and reigns from a position of glory above. So that we see that Jesus Christ is better in every way than the earthly kings of Israel and the earthly priests of Israel. So let's start at verse 2. Jesus is sitting at the, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. That's the end of verse 1. Then verse 2, a minister or a servant in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. So notice that the author here is telling you Jesus Christ is better than what the old covenant believers had because Christ is ministering to us in a better place than where the Levites and the earthly kings of Israel ministered from. They ministered in earthly Jerusalem. Christ ministers from the heavenly Jerusalem. The kings and the priests ministered from the types and the shadows but Jesus Christ is the substance of what all those types and shadows were pointing to. 
Therefore, he is the greater one that we should always stay close to. So he ministered in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. Notice he says, which the Lord pitched, not man. That is, you have in heaven, boys and girls, just so you understand, what, what God commanded to be built, first it was the tabernacle in the wilderness, and they brought the tabernacle into the promised land. And after the tabernacle, what did they build? They built the, top, the temple, right? You have Solomon's temple. That gets destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, right, in 586. They, they come back after 70 years, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. And what's the first thing Ezra and Nehemiah start doing? Is they start rebuilding the walls in the temple. And, so they, and, they, and that's what they call the second temple of Judaism. And they, they build the second temple of Judaism. And that uh, second temple continued into the day of Jesus Christ until AD 70. And it was destroyed by General Titus of the Roman Empire. So these two temples, though, whether the first Solomon's temple or the second temple of Judaism, these two temples were built by human hands. They were built with earthly materials. They were built um, over many, many years and they offered only a typological look at a spiritual reality. God told Moses, be careful how you build the tabernacle and later the temple, because why? Because it is only a copy of what? A heavenly reality. It's only a copy teaching them greater truths. Now, what is the greater truth? The greater truth is just as you approach God through a sacrifice and then you have a high priest who enters in through the veil to the throne room where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat was. All of that was pointing to the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, destroy this temple and what? I will rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his body. So Jesus is telling us here that that which was built in Solomon's day and after in the Second Temple Judaism, was only a pattern to teach you theological truth about Jesus. And what Jesus has done by coming into this world is one who is God. He's taken on human flesh. He has died for our sins as our sacrifice. Then he goes where? He, as your high priest, goes in behind the veil, just like the earthly high priest does once a year. But Jesus doesn't do it every year. He did it once and forever and, and so Jesus goes into heaven behind the veil. The veil separates us from heaven, right? We are not in heaven. We can't see heaven. We can't see the glory. We can't see God. He is behind that veil. The book of Genesis speaks of it as the waters above and the waters beneath. That, uh, the, you have this ceiling of water, which is the floor of heaven. If you read Genesis chapter 1 there, you have the waters there and the same waters that come out from the throne of God in heaven. That's the floor of heaven, but it's our ceiling, okay? And, but Jesus has gone above that. He's punched through. He's pushed through the outer envelope, as they say in the Apollo missions. Christ has gone through and sits at the right hand of God the Father as a priest. So he has gone into that place, and therefore everything that was signified by the Old Testament temple is now completely done away with. I think that, personally, is why God destroyed the temple in A.D. 70, provident in his providence. Why Jesus, not only was it a judgment on the Jews for their unbelief in Jesus Christ, but it was also a way of saying, look, I'm going to show you the permanency of Jesus' work 
by completely destroying uh, this temple, this earthly temple. And then later in the province of God, he puts a mosque on it. And no, nothing but World War III is going to change what's going to go on that temple mount. It's almost like God says, we're done here. That door is shut, locked, and bolted. We are never going back to an animal sacrificial system because that has been fulfilled in the Lamb of God Himself, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has gone into glory. He has gone, gone onto the other side of the veil. And so now look to this high priest who sits at the right hand of God. A minister in the sanctuary, says the author of Hebrews, in the true tabernacle. Notice he, in verse 2, he calls heaven the true tabernacle of the Lord, which the Lord pitched, not man. This wasn't built by Moses in the wilderness. This wasn't built by Solomon. This wasn't built by Hezekiah and Nehemiah, excuse me, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. This was built by Jesus Christ, by the Lord himself. And then look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now what is he saying there? He's saying that not only is the sanctuary better where Christ is, but the sacrifice is better. In the Old Covenant, the high priest offered bulls and goats and calves. And what does the book of Hebrews tell us elsewhere? That blood cannot take away human sin. What can take away your sin? What can wash away, wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Christ. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ, our high priest, presented a better sacrifice. Listen, none of those, the only reason God accepted the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament is because in his economy, he knew they would be fulfilled by Christ. And therefore, those who offered them in the hope of the future Messiah were received as those who had uh, been forgiven by the blood of Christ, even though he had not yet come. That's the only reason God accepted those old covenant sacrifices was he did so for the sake of Christ. Now that Christ has come, the old order is not needed anymore. It is done. It is finished, Jesus said. That's the last sentence Jesus breathed. It is finished. And then also verse 4, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. That's because he's not of the tribe of Levi. If Jesus, When Jesus was here in, in this world, he, he was not serving as a, as a Levite, was he? No, he's from the tribe of Judah. Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. And the law said, offer the animals. Verse 5, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he said, excuse me, when he was about to erect the tabernacle for C, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. And I just explained that. And then let's look at verse 6 and then make application. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Better priest, better temple, better veil, better sacrifice, better covenant, better promises. Everything in Jesus Christ is better. Now, what do we say in light of this? Friends, first of all, those of you 
who have been drifting. Those of you who have been drifting, if you have been drifting, the, the remedy is here in this text. The remedy for you is the same, though the particulars are different. The remedy is still the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend time meditating on Jesus Christ, on his person, on his work, on his natures, on his sacrifice, on his ongoing ministry, on his exaltation, on his humiliation. Spend your meditative time thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ and see if the Spirit of the Lord doesn't help you as you think on these things that are good and pure and holy and beautiful, that God doesn't also then give you more affection for Christ, that the drifting might stop. Why is it that we drift from the Lord? It's because our affections tend to go elsewhere. It's because something else is drawing us away from the Lord and something is becoming inordinately attractive to us. It might be good. It might be perfectly lawful. I'm not saying it's something sinful necessarily. But it's too inordinate. That is, it's too much of too much. And you're getting your priorities out of whack. Your affections are getting imbalanced. And what you need to help bring the affections back to their proper place, that the good things that God gives us can be kept as good things. That they don't become bad things for us. How do I do that? I do that by focusing on Jesus Christ. If you have seen Jesus Christ by faith, you have seen the Father. And if you will give yourself to the meditation of Jesus Christ in his loveliness, in his beauty, in his holiness, in his uh, atoning sacrificial work, and all the rest. See if you also don't find your heart being strengthened, warmed. Things start to take a better balance and proportion again. And that the things of the Lord start becoming more delightful. How many times have we experienced this? Where we get a fresh breath of God's grace through some particular means. Maybe it's a, 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 a book that was helpful. Maybe it was just a word from a friend that just suddenly brought some refreshment to our life. And we think, man, why do I not live like this always? Why did I spend three hours watching this dumb movie that in the end I didn't really like all that much? And then I read a few verses of my Bible and it's like my life just got changed. What happens is when we are always watching the dumb movies and or whatever it is, the dumb football games or the whatever is drawing us away. And I'm not saying, you know, you can't watch movies and sports and stuff. But I'm saying that the world has a siren song to it that, you know, the best way to lash yourself to the mast <laughs> is by meditating on Christ and thinking about uh, Jesus Christ in his person and in, in his offices here. Now, for those of you who you don't, no, if you're a Christian yet, um, what, do you, what do you do? 
I think in some ways it's the, the antidote is, is very similar for you. Whether, whether you still think you're Christian, but you're not sure, whether you're exploring Christianity, whether you're just taking your first steps to find out what is Christianity all about, where do I start? I would say start in the Gospels. And the reason is because I think that's where you'll get your, your clearest views of Jesus Christ, and you'll get them narratively. Now, I think the epistles are also, of course, are great, and you'll get a lot of theology there. But I think I would start with the narratives, because I think it's easier to lay hold of Jesus Christ as either a new Christian or as somebody who is not yet a Christian by seeing Jesus Christ as he is presented in the stories of the Gospels. And then as you get a sense of Christ from that, then maybe move to Ephesians and Romans, some of the theologically more challenging books, but books which will help explain the theology of what you read narratively in the Gospels. But whether it's by Gospels or whether it's by epistles, the, the point is that it is pointing to Jesus Christ. Even if you choose to read the Old Testament, the, the, the theme will still be the same. You're looking towards Jesus Christ because Jesus told us in John chapter 5 that he said, you search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life. These scriptures speak of me. It's all, the whole Bible is about Christ. So put Christ before you uh, in these ways and I think that will help you uh, come to the Lord in faith.